0: Well, good evening uh, and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, This is uh, hopefully enough space. Hopefully we've had enough time, uh, enough emotional space to kind of calm down from last night. Uh, I know this morning everyone was still a little bit on edge, but it's okay. All right. We're in a safe place now. Uh, There are no field goals here that can harm you. So just rest (laughs) assured It's going to be okay. And and, you know, the reality is we are at a point in the semester where a lot of time fatigue starts to set in. Uh, We're at a point in the semester where uh, we just had our first test week, or maybe first couple test weeks where we're rolling into projects, we're rolling into midterms, uh, where we're we're hitting that point where maybe everything's not so bright and cheery anymore. And everything's not quite as wonderful and uh, optimistic as it was five weeks ago. So what I want us to do tonight is to maybe slow down just a tad, right? We're, we're at the very end of Judges, uh, where we're reaching the very end of our, our time in it. We're starting next week, we're going to be in uh, some different stuff. But uh, as part of tonight, as part of our kind of ramp out of Judges, I also kind of want us to sort of just take a breath, relax a little bit. I'm not gonna stress you out with any weird stories from history about people murdering other people. Instead, we're just gonna absorb this wonderful birthday moment. Uh, and you're now two. Uh, Light up it top. Light it on the top, like this. Now you blow. It. Now you can blow it up. Oh then blow up, blow up here. You're terrible at this. You're going to let your head on fire. Blow it up here. Whoa, dude! Oh my goodness. Right here. Right there. Blow. What did you... Hold on. Here. Ready? Blow. There you go. Yay! Wow. Good job, buddy. Now eat it. Now you want to eat it? Man candles can be hard, you know? Candles can be really hard. We've, we've had ourselves, we found all of ourselves really in that moment, uh, where maybe we've had some sort of desire, uh, but yet we lacked the direction to make it happen, right? Where maybe we uh, were trying to achieve some sort of purpose, but we just couldn't quite get there. We, we didn't know necessarily how or, or what to do, and, and what we wound up being for a while is just sort of failed potential, right? With all that breath, pfft, coming out of our faces, and yet it wasn't hitting the right spot. We've all been told, we've been grown, we've grown up being told that we have the potential to be anything, to do anything, to achieve anything we want. We've been told time and again that we can just pick a dream and chase it and find it. And yet, we've all found ourselves failing to do so. Right? We've all found ourselves in that moment failing to reach our potential due to some sort of maybe external or internal failure. We've found ourselves kind of falling in that pursuit. And, and when that happens, what our culture tells us is, well, you just got to get back up. right? Get back up on the horse. You got to get back on track. You just need to pick yourself up and try harder. If you didn't achieve your dream, you just need to keep trying and trying and trying and trying until you do until you reach that spot that you want to be. Why? It's because our culture embraces relativism. Said it week in, week out. Our culture embraces relativism. In other words, our culture believes that if everyone was able to just follow their own path, if everyone could just pick their own personal spot on the horizon that they wanted to reach, if everyone could just do whatever they think is best, And if we just allowed everyone to make that decision around us, then we would find as a society peace. We would find harmony. We would find happiness. We'd find fulfillment. And yet in the past four weeks, we've been studying the book of Judges, where we see another culture that embraced relativism. And instead of finding peace and happiness and harmony and fulfillment, at the end, they found destruction. They found rebellion. They found death. What we have in the book of Judges is a picture, a perfect picture for why we as believers are called, in fact, to reject relativism so that we can instead embrace God's path. Because the truth is that God alone knows what's best. The truth is that God's path alone leads to life as opposed to all the others that don't. We might think that it is best to just fight through our failure in order to reach our potential. But as believers, God has forgiven our failures. We don't have to fight that battle anymore. He's won that war. He has forgiven our failures, not so that we can then run towards that dream we had on the horizon, but so that we can embrace, accept, and align ourselves with the purpose that he's provided to every single believer. As we've walked through this book, we've kind of seen that the, and essentially the, the nation of Israel at that time was divided into tribes, and every single tribe kind of was messing up in their own way, and they were all being oppressed by different people. But all of them kind of had this overarching theme of doing what was best in their own eyes, right? That's why the very first week of school, four weeks ago, we talked about actually the very end of Judges. We looked at the final three chapters where it outlined the story that took place. It wasn't the final thing to happen chronologically, but it was the kind of bow that the author wanted to tie the whole book up with. Because remember, the author wrote this book using historical events, real actual events and people and places, but he didn't arrange it in a chronological order. One, two, three. Instead, he arranged it thematically. He brought in these things, and he he highlighted certain stories, and talked about certain people, and put them in a way that it would create this overarching theme, this overarching purpose, this overarching point. And he sums it all up in the last three chapters by telling us about that Levite with his concubine, that story that started kind of lighthearted and got really dark, the story that involved murder and rape, and, and eventually genocide where all of Israel banded together to murder every Benjamite they could find. And at the very end of that story, the very final closing statement of the entire book of Judges was that everyone did what was right in his own eye. In other words, everyone fully embraced relativism. So what we see this evening is the author building to that point, not quite there, but he's almost there. And so he's going to go through the life of a judge who basically perfectly encapsulates the nation of Israel, the story of Israel in his personal life. Someone who, through his life, we're going to see this, uh, this desire, this kind of wayward wandering, this, this tendency to follow your own path. We see this just perfectly in his life. A guy named Samson. But before we see that play out in his life, we first look at the nation of Israel. Chapter 13 of Judges, we see that the Israelites, they again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Right here we see one of the tribes of Israel, maybe a few of the tribes of Israel, they sinned against God and God told them, look, when you make those compromises, it creates corruption in your midst, right? We talked about this four weeks ago. That compromise would create corruption. That corruption would always bring the destruction from another neighboring nation, from other people that God would use to judge Israel. And generally what we've seen week in, week out, is that the nation of Israel, they get attacked and they cry out. Right? And they say, oh, ah, ah, We we talked about the fact that it wasn't necessarily repentance. Repentance meaning that you're walking one way, you realize you're mistaken, and you run the opposite direction. That's repentance. Israel wasn't doing that. They were just walking one way. It hurt because it was wrong, because it was off of God's path. And so they're just like, ah, oh, no. and God would deliver them. He'd pull them out of it with a judge. He'd raise up a judge and they'd be delivered. What we see right here is Israel falling into that same trap, falling under the rule of the Philistines. And so God, in his mercy, goes to a man named Manoah, who is from Zora, from, from the Danite tribe. Now his wife was infertile and childless. So the Lord's angelic messenger appeared to the woman and said to her, You are infertile and childless, but you will conceive and have a son. Well, Okay. That's pretty cool. Right here, we see this random couple who've been trying to have kids for years. Kids are a sign of blessing. Kids are a sign of prosperity in that culture, in those ancient times. And they're probably super bummed out by the fact that they can't have kids. I mean, that was that was a major that hurt because it meant that your line wasn't going to continue. I mean, it meant you had no one to pass your things on to. It was, it, was a, it was a major bummer, right? That's biblical wording right there. In the original Hebrew, major bummer was actually how it was described. And so this... They're overjoyed that this angel would appear to the wife and be like, hey, look, check it out. You're going to have a son. But not only is it special that you're having a child, not only is it just a miracle that God is giving you a child, but this child is going to be special. You have to be careful. Do not drink wine or beer. Do not eat any food that will make you ritually unclean. Look, you will conceive and have a son. You must never cut his hair for the child will be dedicated to God from birth. He will begin to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. What we see is that this child is essentially being thrust into what is called a Nazarite vow. Now this is a thing that 's outlined in the book of leviticus it 's something that the Lord gave the Israelites a practice that they could they could uh, undertake in certain uh, extenuating circumstances. Generally, if you were a man or a woman in the nation of Israel and you really wanted to get God's attention, you really uh, were worried about some sort of event, or or maybe you were praying for something to happen in someone's life, or whatever it is, or maybe you just kind of were feeling convicted of of your own kind of fault, what you would do is you would take the Nazarite vow. What that meant is that you were setting yourself apart to be dedicated to the Lord. Literally, Nazarite is coming from the word to be set apart. She's saying, you know what, I'm going to set myself apart, and I'm going to do so through three rituals. The first is I'm not going to drink any wine. Symbolically showing, look, I'm not going to be under the influence of anything but the Holy Spirit. Only God can influence my behavior. I'm not going to give myself over to any other master. I'm not going to cut my hair. It's an outward symbol so that other people look at me and they're like, oh, Jacob's got a Nazarite vow going because that beard is gross, right? And they would see, okay, like he's got this thing going on where the, he or she is being dedicated to the Lord. They would also not go near a dead body. God told them all these things, don't, don't drink wine, don't cut your hair, don't go near a dead body because that would make you ritually unclean. Meaning that before you could go to the Lord, if you had been around something dead, like a dead animal or a dead person, you weren't allowed to go to the temple and, and worship in that right afterwards. Because you had to go through a cleaning process, a cleansing process. Because the God is holy it was a symbolic act to show, look, God is holy. So if you were in, taking the Nazarite vow, you'd say, you know what? I'm always going to be available to worship. I'm always going to be available to go see the Lord at the temple. I'm not going to go near anything dead. So you would take this vow willingly, and you would carry it out for a time. You would set a time limit at the beginning, or maybe you would just, it would depend on circumstances, or you just make up your mind as you got into it. And eventually you would reach an end, and you would signify the end of your Nazarite vow by cutting your hair and making a sacrifice, performing a sacrifice for the Lord, saying that this vow is complete, mission accomplished. But this child, right, he's not getting to choose it for himself. Instead, God says, you know what? I've chosen him. I'm setting him apart. Why? Because he will begin to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. He's going to start the process of saving Israel from these oppressors. Now, this is incredibly significant because remember, we've seen time and again Israel falling into this issue. They get the, you know, the, the compromise, the corruption, and then the destruction. They would cry out, oh, but right here, Israel hasn't cried out. They haven't even moaned. They haven't even grumbled or complained to the Lord. God, because he's so gracious, because he's always been so gracious, because there's no such thing as a division between the New Testament and the Old Testament God. God, being gracious, saw Israel, saw their suffering, and moved towards them to deliver them without being asked. He says, I know that you haven't cried out to me. I know that your repentance is nowhere near your thought process right now. But I'm going to save you anyway. I'm going to move towards you. I will initiate this deliverance that will start with this kid, and it will be completed, as we now know, by David, by King David, the man after God's own heart, who finally defeated the Philistines, chased them out of Israel completely so they were no longer a threat, so they were no longer an enemy. God has set this kid up but his dad doesn't quite believe it, right? If, we'd kept re- if we kept reading, uh, the mom goes to the dad, and she's like, hey, she goes to Manoa, She's like, look, the angel came to me, and he told me this stuff, and it's going to be really crazy. Manoa's like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Like, are you sure it was an angel? She's so like, it really was. He's like, I don't know. So the angel has to come back again and be like, no, for real, I'm an angel. And Manoa's like, I don't know. Can you eat food? Because that was the thing. They, they were like, angels can't eat food. So he's like, huh? Food? angel doesn't eat food. Instead, the angel just like, poof, disappears. And he's like, oh, it was an angel. You're right. And so then, in that moment, they finally believe. They're like, okay, cool. And so they have the kid, and they name him Samson, which is literally saying, uh, it's the word, they're slamming together, uh, saying that he's like the sun. That's what we see in the name of Samson. He's like the sun. Or or other words, you could also call him mighty one, because he's like the sun, right? It's big, powerful, bright, hot, whoa. We see this. And so they say, you know what? This kid has so much potential. He's growing up with every advantage. He's been chosen by the Lord. He's been set apart from birth. Other judges in, in the nation of Israel, they were raised up by God, right? They were kind of chosen and thrust into situations. Samson, he's being grown by God from conception. Samson is, in other words, perfectly reflecting the nation of Israel. Right, Every judge reflected the nation of Israel in some way. As we walked through the past weeks, hopefully you picked up on the fact that you know, all these judges, their lives and their circumstances, they kind of point towards the nation of Israel, each in their kind of own way. Deborah showed how God would, would equip Israel for his calling. Abimelech showed how God would judge and destroy any kingdom that Israel tried to create for themselves selfishly. Uh, Jephthah showed that the sin that would, that would start to take root in Israel would just spread further and further and further. But Samson, Samson is showing, he's he's illustrating the fact that God grabbed Israel. He chose Abraham, pulled him out, set him apart, said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to use you to change the world. God's doing this with Samson. This is a kid who has so much potential. My... Dad's parents uh, were wonderful grandparents. They're both passed away now. But when I would go to see them growing up, uh, once I reached about high school, junior high, high school, uh, they had a favorite question to ask me when we'd show up at their house. My grandfather would ask me every single time, be like, "Jacob, how tall are you? How tall are you these days?" I'm like, "Well, grand, you know, well, papa, I'm, I'm uh, about six foot or whatever." I, I eventually, you know, got to about six five. I was like, oh, "I'm about six five," and he'd be like, <sighs> every time. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> so proud. Him and his wife, my grandmother as well. They'd be, like, oh, that's so good, and they would be so excited, so excited every single time we would go see them. They would ask, "Jay, oh, I'm, so, you are so tall, and I'm so proud of your tallness, of your height." Every single time I saw them, they would just, they would just pour this praise upon my stature. And and why? It's because every single time they just thought, they just knew in their heart of hearts, this is something great, right? Like This is something you can use. This is something that you have that will carry you forward. Who knows where? Sky's the limit because you're so tall. They were so excited for me. They thought I had so much potential to my height. Samson had so much potential in who he was and what God said he was going to do. And what is the very first thing we see Samson accomplish? He went down to Timnah, where a Philistine girl caught his eye. And when he got home, he told his father and mother, a Philistine girl in Timnah has caught my eye. Now get her for my wife. First thing we see Samson do is completely mess up. He sees a girl and wants her to be his wife. That's normal, okay? So that's kind of part of the custom then. You wouldn't really date. You would just see someone and be like, yeah, okay. And your parents would go talk to their parents and they'd arrange the thing and they'd pay each other money and then boom, you're married. That's how it worked. Samson picks a Philistine and his parents tell him that in the very next verse. They say, Samson you picked a Philistine. Like that's not going to work. They're the enemy. Literally your entire life, we've been telling you, building you up for the fact that you will defeat the Philistines. You can't marry one. That doesn't make any sense. God outlawed that in his law, said you can't marry these outsiders. They they worship false gods. They're going to pull you away from me this is a serious thing that she's an enemy and not in some sort of like cute romantic comedy sort of way, right? It's not like, oh, she's in the rival dance crew, Samson. Wow, that's never going to work. <laughs> this is super serious. These people are oppressing Israel. They are, a, they are a conquered nation under the rule of these Philistines. But Samson's like, ah, nah, she's good. So he went down to Timnah And when he approached the vineyards of Timnah, he saw a roaring young lion attacking him. The Lord's Spirit empowered him, and he tore the lion in two with his bare hands, as easily as one would tear a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Samson says, you know what? You mom and dad, you're not going to go talk to her. I'll go talk to her. I'll go set this up. So he heads down to Timnah on his way. Lion jumps out. He rips it in half, because why not? And I love that it's described as easily as one would tear a young goat. Because you know how that goes. (laughs) So everyone in the audience is like, oh yeah, like a goat. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I got got it. Great. So he goes, the Lord empowers him, gives him the strength. Again, he's just, he's got so much potential, this guy. The Lord is using him and empowering him. And yet, He's using it to do silly things like rip apart lions, like go to Timnah to find this Philistine girl. And so he continued down to Timnah, spoke to the girl, and in his opinion, she was just the right one. Literally, the wording right there in Hebrew is saying that the girl was, quote, right in the eyes of Samson. Huh. What does that sound like? This is Israel. This is Israel. Samson decided, you know what? I know that God has this calling. I know that God has laid out this purpose. I know that God has called me to this thing, to accomplish this mission in front of me, but I don't want to do that. I want to do my thing. I want to be what I want to be. I want to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I want to do what's right in my eyes. So he says, you know what? I'm going to marry this woman. And sure enough, he sets it all up, and he gets the wedding planned and everything like that. And, and then he's traveling back to Timnah again to actually attend the feast, the wedding feast. And on his way, uh, he finds the lion's carcass, and it's uh, dead, obviously, ripped. That's what happens when you get ripped in half. And he, what he saw is that the, some bees had set up a, a hive inside of the rib cage. And so he goes near this dead body, and he pulls honey out of it and eats it from a dead body. Lion carcass. Remember, he's not supposed to go near dead dead bodies. He's he's taking the Nazarite vow. Not only is he going near the body, but he's eating food from it. That is like the ultra most unclean thing you could possibly, like today even, that's the most unclean thing you can do. Is to find a carcass in the woods and be like, oh, honey. (laughs) Gross. So he goes goes through that, and it inspires him. He gets to his wedding, and he starts the feast. Again, he's at the feast. He's partying it up. He's probably drinking a ton, which again, Nazarite vow, come on. Starts the party, and at that time, weddings were about a week long, all right? So you had to kind of find things to do other than just like drink and eat. And so you would play games, and you would have riddles, and songs, and all this crazy stuff. And so Samson's loves riddles. We're going to see this th- throughout the evening. He loves riddles. And so he sets up a riddle, and he delivers it to his audience. And he tells them, not just is it a riddle, but he gambles on it. He makes it a bet. He says, if you can solve this riddle, then I will give you 30 sets of clothes. But if you can't solve the riddle by the end of the wedding, then you owe me 30 sets of clothes. Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to owe you a lot of money, or you owe me a lot of money. Those were just very valuable things. So he says, out of the eater, this this is his riddle. He says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Oh, and he just waited for him to solve it. And it turned out that all these Philistine dudes that were hanging around, they couldn't get it. They tried and tried and tried, couldn't get it. And so on the fourth day, they go to his bride. And they're like, hey, you've got to tell us what the answer is. She's like, I don't know it, but I can find out. So she asked Samson day after day after day. doesn't tell her, doesn't tell her, doesn't tell her. Until the very last day, he says, okay, you know what? Fine. It was honey out of the lion. Cool. She goes and tells the Philistines. They're her countrymen. So they come back the very final day of the wedding, and they say, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson gets really mad, responds, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. In case you missed it. Samson just compared his bride to a cow and is essentially very, very mad, right? Like he knows that they cheated. And he uses this expression that was kind of common, but generally not in terms of people. It, what he's trying to communicate is you went somewhere you weren't supposed to go, you did something you weren't supposed to do, you, you used something that you weren't supposed to use, right? You, you went to a place that didn't belong to you and you cheated. He's mad. So Samson that night goes about 20 miles south to another town and he murders 30 Philistines, 30 dudes. I don't know how, just I'm assuming Batman style, except Batman doesn't kill, but he (laughs) killed 30 guys. After he kills them, he takes their cloaks, brings them back. The next morning, he gives those cloaks to all the guys who run the bet. That's how he paid off his debt. He just murdered guys and took their clothes to give them to the winners. At this point, he's so mad, he leaves, just completely forgets about his bride. She's kind of stuck, and so she marries the best man. That's what happens. It's just weird. So we see Samson, man, this guy had so much potential, so much power, so much ability, and yet he's just going this crazy route. If we kept reading chapters 15, chapter 16, we would see time and time again, story after story, where he is just kind of doing his own thing, and it's generally very violent. Uh, we see him essentially uh, wanting to go back and have sex with his wife uh, or his bride, and, and the da- her dad's like, dude, she went with the best man. And it seems like, dang it. So he gets 300 jackals, which are kind of like foxes. He ties them together in pairs because, uh, you know, jackals. And he... Sticks torches in between their tails, lets them loose from the crops. They burn down all the Philistine crops. The Philistines are so mad that they burn down uh, his father-in-law's house with his father-in-law and his bride inside of it, so they're dead. And Samson gets so mad at them that the heathen revenge kills all the guys that murdered his bride. Then Samson is basically on the Philistine most wanted list. The Philistines are like, okay, we'll do anything. Just, you know, hand him over to us, Israel. Israel's like, okay, fine. So they... Find Samson, they tie him up, they bring him to the Philistines, drop him in a field. Samson, in the middle of the field, finds a donkey's jawbone, because, you know, Israel. And he's like, (laughs) this will work. And he murders a thousand Philistines with a jawbone, right? A thousand of them, just boom, done. And at the end of it, he lets off this beautiful, like, action, Bruce Willis kind of one-liner, where he essentially gives a little bit of a poem. He uses wordplay. He says uh, this little statement that starts with, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've left them in heaps. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's wordplay. It's connecting uh, 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 jawbone and, or donkey and, and heaps. It they sound similar. It's kind of a little bit wordplay thing. And so one commentator actually even tried to carry it over English. He was like, okay, so if this happened in English, it would essentially be uh, with the jaw of an ass. I have piled them in mass, which is just so beautiful. And then at that point, he drops it on the ground or on this pile of dead bodies. Remember, he killed a thousand people. And then he declares that the place will forever be named Jawbone Hill. In English, that's what it translates to be Jawbone Hill. Beautiful. And at that moment, Samson prays for the first time in his entire story. We don't know about it in his entire life, but for the first time in the story, we see a prayer from Samson. We see him in that moment feeling very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord, and he said, You have given your servant this great victory, but now must I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines and prays for the first time, and to his credit, he acknowledges God, right? To his credit, he says, you've given me this victory. I know this isn't 100% me, but I'm so thirsty. You're just going to let me die of thirst. In other words, he's perfectly illustrating the nation of Israel. Again, the nation of Israel— who was raised out of Egypt, right? They were in bondage. They were enslaved to the nation of Egypt. Moses shows up, brings them up, brings them out. All these miracles happen. All these, the Red Sea parts, and they walk across the Red Sea, crashes back in on Pharaoh's army. The strongest, most powerful army of that day was just decimated by God. Israel watches it. They're like, man, that was really cool. And then, like, three days later, as they're walking through the desert towards the promised land that God is guaranteed to give them, they're like, oh, well, I'm really thirsty. I'm going to die of thirst, and at least we had water in Egypt. That's what they say, like a few days into their journey. People who are so quick to forget the goodness of God. Samson, who is so quick to forget that God is in control, that God has a more perfect plan, a more perfect purpose than than Samson could ever imagine. But God, in his mercy, in this moment, actually provides water tells us that the Lord struck the ground, and in fact, water just pours up at that point. And Samson drinks it, and it revitalizes him. He's strengthened again. It's this beautiful moment of seeing that, the God, uh, that God will still provide not just water, not just nourishment, but he provides continued opportunity to live for him. But Samson goes straight from this to sleeping with a prostitute, a woman named Delilah, they have this kind of extended affair thing where he would try uh, or she would try to find out the secret of his strength because the Philistines at this point are offering her just like a fortune upon a fortune to, find, to get this guy out, take this guy out of commission. And so she's like, sure, let me just work on this guy. Let me, let me find out. And she asks him night after night, hey, wh- what's the secret to your strength? They probably thought it was an amulet of some sort or a, a medallion, something like that. And Samson would kind of hint at it Without giving her the full answer. He'd tell her things like, well, if you braid my hair with fine ribbons that are brand new, or fine rope that's brand new, then I could never escape. You would finally defeat me. And then he would fall asleep. Delilah would call up the Phil- or call for the Philistines, I guess, and they would rush in. And she would be like, "Samson, the Philistines are here! Oh my goodness, what the!" And Samson would just like come up, like shake them all off, beat them up, kill a lot of them, and it was great. And he did this three times until the fourth time, where she's finally like, "Samson, why? You know, just tell me, just tell me, tell me the secret of your strength." Samson finally tells. He's like, "You know what? If someone were to cut my hair, that would do it." Something in the back of his mind re- remembered, hey, you know what? Part of this whole vow that I've taken and not really taken seriously for my entire life, part of it was that I wasn't supposed to cut my hair. So you know what? Maybe that'll do it. He's gambling. Why would he tell her these things? Why would he hint at it? It's because he's a gambler. It's because he loves riddles. He loves this kind of Russian roulette, honestly. So he tells her this. Sure enough, she said, the Philistines are here, Samson. Samson. He woke up, thought, well, I'll do as I did before, shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him. Samson thought that even if they cut his hair, he didn't really think it would take away his strength. He thought he was still just kind of throwing out another tease, throwing another riddle. He didn't realize when he woke up that, oh, no, that's it. That's, that, that's the end. God has given opportunity after opportunity, uh, chance after chance, and finally, God says, judgment must come. After years and years and years of Samson doing his own thing, pursuing what was right in his own eyes, God finally says, enough is enough. Judgment must fall upon you. So he allows Samson to be captured. He allows Samson to have his eyes gouged out. He allowed Samson to be brought down to Gaza to be bound in bronze chains. He allowed Samson to become a grinder in the prison, literally just pushing a stone across wheat. He allowed Samson, who was so used to being this high and mighty hero, get completely humiliated. He allowed Samson, this guy with so much potential, so much power, so much ability, get driven into the ground by his enemy. For his entire life, Samson wanted what was right in his eyes. And he used his abilities, he used his gifts as he saw fit. And when he did that, he had just enough success to get really stupid and to fail spectacularly. And in that moment, Samson chose to just deny his purpose. Right? That's what led him there. That moment came about because he had just simply denied the purpose set for him by God and instead chased his own thing, pursued his own desires, and became defined by someone who had just failed potential. Anyone looking at him in that moment would say, flash in the pan, what a waste. What a waste. My grandparents are not the only people in my life that have asked me how tall I am. Uh, I also get it from other family members, friends, uh, and just random people in the grocery store. And when that happens, uh, they generally would ask me uh, one of two things. In those moments, uh, they would ask me, or they would ask me two things total. They would start by asking me, again, random people in the street, how tall are you? I tell them, 6'5, 6'6. I'm like, ah, second question, every single time, follow up, every single time. Do you play basketball? And I, could, I heard the murmurings, because we all know that. Tall people, we know that struggle. Where they would eventually ask me, how tight, did you play basketball? And every single time, I would make them so sad by telling them, well, no. I'm like, no, I did not. I did not play basketball. And every time, just I would see this light in their eyes just go away. <laughs> and just, jim. They would be so sad. Almost as sad as the people that wind up behind me at concerts, right? Also due to my high. But these people would be so sad. (laughs) Why? Because in their eyes and their minds, I've just wasted this opportunity. I've wasted this potential that I could have had. I could have played basketball in high school, I guess. All right. (laughs) Great. But I didn't. That would just kill them. That would kill the random people in the grocery store. Still does. I love it. <laughs> Failed potential is a sad thing, man. We see this in, in our friends' lives and our family's lives. It's something that does kind of get us down. It's something that we see and we're like, man, that's, that's a it's tragedy. But the Philistines, when they saw Samson, they were not bummed out at all. The Philistines were just like partying. They gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to celebrate. They said, our God has handed Samson, our enemy, over to us. This is a huge moment for them. They're like, snap. Hitler's dead in their mind, right? Osama bin Laden, dead. This is their moment where their greatest enemy, their, their nation's enemy, the enemy of the state is finally defeated. So they're like, let's party it up. Let's get this thing going. So they gather together, thousands of them, and they bring out Samson to be the little kind of sideshow, to be their entertainment. Let's trot him out, look at the big dum-dum, and just celebrate how wonderful our God Dagon is. One of many gods. He was kind of one of their top gods. He said, let's celebrate this. And Samson in that moment, in that ultimate humiliation, was finally humbled. All of that crashing down upon him finally forced Samson to take a minute, to take stock of his life, of where he wound up. And he finally got it. He finally realized that maybe there was more to life than just his personal pursuits. Maybe there was something bigger at work. Maybe God had a better plan than he did himself. In that moment, when the temple was filled with men, with women, all the rulers of the Philistines, they were all there. And there were 3,000 men and women on the roof watching Samson entertain. And Samson called to the Lord, O Master, Lord, remember me. In that moment, Samson uses all three names for God that Israel had at that time. He called him Elohim. He called him Adonai. He said Yahweh. All these words, all these names that carry different meanings, whether it was saying you are the Lord of all creation, whether it was saying that you are the master of my my life, Or whether it's saying that you are the personal God who has made a covenant with his people, who has set us apart. He says, you need to remember me. Because I feel like you've forgotten. Finally, Samson cries out to the Lord, not for some water, but for forgiveness. He says, God, Lord, remember me. And he asks God. One thing, strengthen me just one more time. O God, so that I can get swift revenge against the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars that supported the temple. He leaned against them with his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And he said, let me die with the Philistines. So he pushed hard and the temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people in it. And he killed many more people in his death than he had killed during his life. In the very end of his life, the very midst of his greatest failure, Samson finally prays. And he does something I think that is poetically beautiful. But I think the author is specifically wanting us to catch. He ends his Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow would begin. You'd do, do these different things. How would you end it? You would cut your hair and you'd perform a sacrifice. You'd make a sacrifice to the Lord. Samson's hair was cut off by the Philistines. And now what's he doing? He's sacrificing his life. He says, God, let me die. Let me serve your purpose. God, let me align with your will. And God used him. Even in the midst of his failure, even in the midst of so many mistakes, God still gave Samson the opportunity to be used for his purpose. Because we have a God who's gracious. We have a God who's merciful. We have a God that Paul describes in Ephesians, uh, talking to people, all of us who were dead in your sins and or transgressions and sins in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. Paul says, you know what? The only potential we have as human beings is for sin and death. The only potential we have within us, the only thing that we can really do is go against the will of God and die as a consequence. So that's our potential. This is true for all of us who also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says we are born as enemies of God, but, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All your potential leads to sin. All of your potential leads to death. But God, being rich in mercy, without waiting for us to cry out, without waiting for us to repent, without waiting for us to fix these things in our lives that maybe aren't quite right, without waiting for us for the, to stop doing that and, and quit sleeping with him and, and stop going there and get this thing up and do that and fix that relationship. God doesn't wait for those things to happen. Instead, God looks at us as dead sinners, as enemies, as children of wrath. God looks at us and he says, I still love you. I'm still going to start this process of deliverance. Not only am I going to start it, but I'm going to finish it all at once through the life of one person, Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven onto earth to live, die, and rise again so that we could have life eternal, so that we could be made alive even though we were dead. All of this is made possible by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. If anyone calls in the name of Christ, if anyone trusts in who he is, on what he's done, if anyone accepts him as their God, as their Savior, you're set apart. You're adopted into the family of God. And you know what? That's the beginning. It's not the end of your story. That's the beginning. Paul goes on. He says, We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do him, do them. He says, look, not only are we saved and that's great and awesome, but we have been saved for a purpose. God has not only forgiven our failures, he has provided a purpose Christ himself describes it in the most basic of terms as the purpose to love our God and to love his people. Our scripture elaborates on it some, and some of those kind of foundational things, we're loving God, we're loving his people, we are serving and we're sacrificing. Whether we're leading or or whether at the top of the ladder or the bottom, we are serving the people around us. No matter where we find ourselves, we're sacrificing, laying down our lives for the sake of the men and the women around us. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. That's what Christ himself has told us. God has a purpose for your life. God wants to use you. God has a mission for you to accomplish. And no matter how many mistakes you make, his mercy covers those. He wants you on mission. He wants you fulfilling that purpose. After disappointing so many people in the grocery stores of my life, by not playing basketball, I did begin to honestly start to question, like, should I have played? Like, is there an intramural team that I could go join? I feel like I'm missing something. But when I was here at Grace, I was started I was volunteering with youth ministry. I was with uh, juniors in high school, but I found myself as a junior in college, and they said, you know what? We, what we need you to do is work with middle school kids. And so they brought me on, part-time staff, working with junior high kids, And my first night of junior high ministry, I discovered something very profound. That none of those kids would listen to anyone, anytime, for no reason, no matter what, no, never, never. They're the worst. (laughs) Unless you were really big. (laughs) That was the only thing. That was the only thing that they would respect if you were still like a lot larger than they were. And so I found myself from that first night through three years of just pure junior high ministry, I realized that really the best tool in my belt, the best ammo in my gun was to go to those kids and just use my height to force them to respect me, to force them to listen to me. That was the only way that I would get an 8th grade kid to stop punching the 7th grade kid. Is I would just have to walk up and be like, you need to stop and tower over them a little bit. Wear bulky clothing so I look more intimidating. Jink hit pants together. Stop it! That was it. That was the only hope I had to speak to those kids. And it worked. And in that moment, I realized, oh my goodness, the Lord has prepared me for this time, for this task. Suddenly I realized that my height had another purpose. I realized that God had been shaping me and bringing me to that moment to bring order where there was only chaos. And it was beautiful. God has a purpose for your life. God has gifted you and equipped you in in incredibly unique ways. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different passions. We all have different abilities. And you know what? Most of the time, you don't discover those things by just sitting down and thinking about it. Most of the time you discover your gifts, you discover where you can be used by the Lord by just trying it out, by just experimenting. We know this. We do this. My daughter, Charlotte, nine months old, super great, in case I hadn't told you. She is learning and growing and changing. She can pull up and bite stuff. It's pretty great. She made that mural behind her head. It's amazing. She's just so gifted, And talented. GT all the way. But she, she will one day, of course, go to Texas A&M University, right? That's just like a given. She's already dressing herself in their clothes. So the question she has to ask herself is, what scholarship will take me there? Like, how will I find myself in that university. Many of us, growing up as kids, we asked ourselves, man, what am I good at? What can I do? And so we would try out lots of stuff. We'd play basketball. We'd play soccer. We'd play baseball. We'd join the whatever the spelling be. We'd go to this event or that event. We'd join this thing. We'd be on debate or I don't know, whatever. We would do all these different things. We'd try out all this different stuff in an attempt to find, okay, what am I geared towards? What are my gifts? What are my abilities? God has equipped all of us. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians that all of us have been given gifts. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit residing within you and he bears fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But not only that, but he also has given you some sort of gift, at least one gift. Teaching, hospitality, preaching. There's so many. Look in 1 Corinthians. And what we know for a fact is that Everyone has at least one, and we've all been equipped in different ways. That's why we are called to come together as a body, because in and of ourselves, we're not complete. We need each other to fill in the gaps. So where are you using your gifts? Not only should you be asking yourself where or how am I equipped, but how am I using those things? Where am I using my gifts? Am I focused on on doing maybe what I want to do? Or am I focused on being set apart for the Lord in the eyes of the people around me? Am I trying out different opportunities to serve? Here at Grace, you could do a week in the children's ministry. You can help out. You can hang out with the youth for a week. You could uh, sign up to do slides or, or some of those for a week. You could, you could do so many different things here at Grace. You could go on a work project, manual labor. Some people love it. It's very gratifying. I have to admit, now that I'm a dad and I have a lot of goals in life that are very ethereal, I like having the occasional like, I need to mow this thing, and it got mowed. All right. Like, I need that. Some of us, that's the way we're wired. Try those things out. Don't sign a four-year contract. Go to it for one week. Try it out. See, man, is that where I fit? Is that the way that God has equipped me? Man, one of the best things you can ask yourself, if you're thinking, man, am am I chasing just kind of what's right in my own eyes? Because honestly, maybe some of us are super involved in lots of other things, and that's great. We've already found our niche. But if you're asking yourself, man, am I focusing on what's right in my eyes? I I have a question that I stumbled upon in college that I would strongly recommend to every single one of you. Is as you're thinking about that thing, you're like, maybe I'm getting a little obsessed with this, or maybe this is something that's just sort of my desire, ask yourself one thing. How would I feel if it was suddenly taken away? How would I feel if it just suddenly ended? that relationship that I've been pursuing, that that grade that I've been wanting to make, that organization that I've been wanting to lead, that internship that I desperately want to get. How would I feel in the moment that I discovered there was no chance of it ever coming about? A lot of times in that moment, we freak out. A lot of times in that moment, we realize, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. And our our hand clenches around it. Our fist tightens. We want to hold on to it so desperately. But God doesn't want that from us. God has called us to hold those things in an open hand, to trust him with the unknown future, to trust him with the things that we can't know about our lives, the directions that he's going to take us, to trust us with those plans that he's made that are so much better than your plans. You know, just because there's something in your life and you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm really holding on to tight, that doesn't mean that you have to let go of it. That doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong, but means you need to kind of think about, all right, what are my priorities in that? Is it to please the Lord, to honor and glorify the Lord in this pursuit, or is it to bring glory to myself? Is it to bring satisfaction to myself? Some of us, we're not really worried about that. Some of us are just thinking, you know, I've been told I've been set apart, but I just don't think it's true. I just don't feel like I'm ready to be in ministry because I'm never going to be perfect. I just, I'm i afraid of not being perfect. I'm afraid of having the wrong motivations, of going about it in the wrong way. And I'll tell you right now, you'll never be perfect. If there's anything that we can learn from the book of Judges, that no one anywhere ever will ever be perfect. But you'll always have purpose. Always. God uses broken men and women all the time to accomplish beautiful things. He wants to use all of us as broken people, to accomplish his purposes. And honestly, this is why, this right here is why we're having a retreat this year. Talked about it a little bit last week, but every single year we've had a college retreat and it's just kind of been the thing that we do to keep doing. And we wanted to be different this year. We said, no, like, let's not just, if we don't have a purpose behind it, if there's no plan, like, let's just end it. So we sat and we thought and we talked and we prayed and we said, what are we going to do with this? And we realized you know what? that it's easy to get caught up in the demands of our work, of our school, of our family, of our friends, uh, of our daily lives. And so what we want to do with the retreat this year is to provide an opportunity, a chance for you to forget the demands of this world and focus on the desires of our God. We want to give you an opportunity to connect with the Lord, to connect with his people, but beyond that, to connect with your purpose We're designing talks and and group time and discussion and and all these different elements to help you think about your purpose. To not just connect commune with your God, but also think about what is he calling me to do? It's an opportunity for us to pull back before we push out harder than ever. Rob and Tristan and Brad, they're gonna come up here and they're gonna start leading us in worship. But, But I would just encourage you that, you know, God has something Plan for you right now. We're all headed in some sort of direction. So what I want us to do with these next few moments as we prepare to worship is to just think about that, to just pray about that, to go before the Lord and ask him, you know, where are you putting me? Confess to him, this is where I am. I'm feeling anxious about this, or I'm worried about that, or or I'm really excited about this. Just be honest with him. Tell him, man, this, this is where I am right now. But ask him, where do you want me to be? what purpose do you have for my life? What conversation do I need to have? What, what person do I need to initiate with? What organization should I maybe just finally decide to get up and join? What service opportunity do I need to finally just get up and do? God, where are you calling me to be? What purpose have you put before me? So let's do that now. God, we, we thank you for the book of Judges. God, we thank you for the example of men and women who were broken and yet used by you to accomplish amazing things. If you would take a moment right now, confess to the Lord, man, this is where I am. Whether it's a, a sin, a brokenness you want to confess, whether it's even just a praise you want to offer of something that happened that you're just thankful to the Lord for accomplishing, whatever. Tell the Lord where you are, but ask him, where does he want you to be? Where are you headed? What's that purpose that you're called to pursue?